People are afraid, aren't they? Right? There's a, there's a, a spirit of fear has been lingering with us for well over a year now. Some of us had it before that, and it's just gotten worse. There's a, there's a lot going on in the world. And whenever there's a, a season of fear, a lot of kind of crazy stuff swirling around, right? People want to exert a measure of control, right? We, it's out of control. I've got to bring at least my world back into some little measure of control. And to do that, there's things I need to know, right? Like when, when something's going wrong with you and then you, you go to the doctor, even if it's bad news, you say, at least I, at least I know, right? At least some measure of order and control has been placed upon what was a scary and out of control situation. So we want to know, we want things explained to us, right? How many of us, when, when news started trickling in of the, of the coronavirus or all, all, any news that trickles in, we run to Google, right? Because I just need to know what's going on. Tell me what is, explain to me what's happening. And we also want, what do I need to do? Right? So how many of you are still working through the toilet paper reserves that you stashed up last <laughs> March and April, right? Am I right? Right? So why, why, why did we do that? Right? Because it was just, I, I can exert some measure of control on my circumstances. Even though I'm in a very fearful and anxious moment, I have a lifetime supply of toilet paper. So things will be okay. We just want to understand what's happening and we just want somebody to tell us what to do. This is the situation that Judah finds themselves here at the beginning of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapters 8 and 9. And I'm going to sketch this kind of historical circumstance for us probably not just this week, but other weeks as well. So to the far north, you have Assyria, who is going to become, again, the first great uh, sort of mm, modern evil empire, right? And then you've got Babylon, who is an ancient evil empire, kind of vying for power there. You've got Egypt, which was another great empire. And then you've got little tiny Judah kind of situated in between these and ringed around by sort of medium-level nation-states who are each of whom is bigger and stronger than Judah. Israel, Moab, Philistia, Syria. So you've got this, and right now at this moment, it's all in a state of flux. Assyria has not emerged as the great empire that it's going to be. Babylon is still pretty strong. Egypt's still pretty strong. And so there's a lot of flux. There's a lot of uncertainty. And so Judah being in distress, they want some measure of control. They want an explanation. What is really going on here? And they want some advice. What should we do? And so here's where they are turning for explanations and advice. They're turning to chapter 8, verse 11. The Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Right, so the power of conspiracy theories is that they explain what's, why I'm afraid. They explain what's happening by directing the causes to external factors. Well, there's this going on and this, and that's why things are going like this, and, and oh, okay, right? And now I know a little bit better. The second thing that they're looking for to give them some measure of control and security is uh, beginning in verse 19. And, and when they say, God is saying this to Isaiah, when they say to you, Isaiah, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. So I thought tweeters would be kind of a good shorthand to talk about 
uh, these, these folks. So mediums and necromancers, right? So what do you, what do you envision? Right, some scraggly-haired old crone over a cauldron, muttering some you know dark language, and out of the smoke she oh she sees things, and then she tells you like you need to go do this and hurry and quick you know, and so they're going to these sorcerers for advice. Here's the situation as we understand it. What are we supposed to do? And so they look into the cauldron, right? They they spit and scrape it with their nail, and they they find out what you're supposed to do. So this is where Judah's going for their explanations and for their advice. But of course, this advice is, while very practical perhaps, it is faithless, has no, no appeal to God. What should, it, what should Judah be doing? What should Judah be doing? Let's go back to chapter 8, verse 13. The Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. They should fear the Lord, not their fears. They should dread the Lord, not those dreads. Fear the Lord. Verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Fear the Lord, hope in him. Right, whatever, you, whatever you genuinely fear, your hope is locked up in the resolution of that fear. Oh, Assyria is growing. And we just need Egypt to, to create a strong enough coalition here in, in the Middle East to withstand there. And then, right, so if that's your fear, your hope is locked up in those same players. But if our greater fear is not just the ones who can kill the body, but the ones who can kill the body and throw the soul into hell, right? The, the greater and more powerful king, if our fear is in him, then our hope is in him too. No matter what the other players do, we have hope if he is our fear. So our hope and our fear are locked up together. We should fear the Lord, we should hope in him, and then we should turn to the teaching and the testimony. The testimony and teaching. Verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples, and then verse 20, after talking about the mediums and the necromancers, to the teaching and to the testimony, in verse 20. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Look to the teaching and the testimony. What's the teaching and the testimony? It's the word of God. It is the, the instructions God gives us. It's the teaching and the testimonies, the stories the Bible contains that bear witness to the wisdom of those teachings, that bear witness to the power of God to honor His promises. So hold to the teachings and the testimonies. And He says, bind them up and seal them. Keep them and value them. These are the things that will guide you to where you want to go and where God wants you to go, not those other things. I mean, what Isaiah, what God is explaining to Isaiah, what Isaiah is trying to explain to Judah, is that God's word gives us the explanations that we need to do what we're called to do. God's word explains for us everything we need to know to be able to do what God has called us to do. There may be other things that can explain other things that have no relevance to our lives, no substantial relevance to our lives. God explains to us everything we need to do what we're called to do. It explains things like sin and the power of sin and the consequences of sin. It explains God's sovereignty and God's power 
The Word explains God's grace and His mercy and His, His promises and His covenant. It explains Christian living and holiness and, and how we're supposed to walk in this world. The Bible explains what's going on, why this is taking place, what our hope is, and what we are to do in the meantime. But as we see all the way back in Isaiah, this is not a modern phenomenon, God's people don't always like God's explanations. And we sometimes also do not want to do what we're called to do. And so we look for narratives, for versions of the situation, what's going on. We look for narratives where I'm the victim, I'm not the bad guy here, I didn't do anything, I'm, uh, there, there's nothing I can do, I'm the victim, there's nothing I can do, and at least I'm not as bad as those people. So I'm the victim, there's nothing I can do, and at least I'm not as bad as those people, and so this story protects me from change, growth, it makes me feel good about myself, right? It stokes my pride, and so forth and so on. But the reality is that God has told us here everything that we need for out there. He has told us here what we need to be what we're called to be and to do what we're called to do in this world. He has told us how to love Him, to be peculiarly His, uniquely His, to be holy and set apart, to be that light. He has told us how to love our neighbors so we can make a substantial difference in this world, in the world that He has placed us in. He has not placed us in the Middle East. He's not placed us in Russia. He has not placed us in China. He's placed us in Wisconsin. And we can make a substantial difference here by following God's Word. And I'm going to say something here that might strike you as a little bit extraordinary, but I don't think that God gives two figs about whether God's people understand world events. God is not in the least interested in His people understanding world events. You will search Scripture in vain to find an admonition to, to know world events. And in fact, it would have been impossible for God's people as recent as 150 years ago to do that. Because the news didn't reach anybody in a timely manner. God cares that His people love Him and love their neighbor well in the way that He has outlined in Scripture. And here's the danger that Judah is finding themselves in. Because they are so fixated on world events, because they are so, so anxious about these different explanations for what's happening, and because they're, they're then turning to, not to the Word, but to social media of the age, the tweeters, the chirpers and mutterers, they are headed for this, verse 20, to the teaching and the testimony, if they'll not speak according to this Word, it is because they have no dawn. No dawn. The sun is setting and they're going to stay in darkness. Verse 22, they'll look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness. They're forsaking the word. They're fixating on speculations. There's no dawn. They're heading into darkness and they're heading into, verse 22 again, the gloom of anguish. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. I tell you what, I think that is the best expression to describe 2020 and 2021 so far. Everywhere I look, everyone I talk to is the gloom of anguish. 
Churches, Christians, not accepted. The gloom of anguish has settled upon this culture, this world. We don't know what's happening. We're worried about it. And we're in a kind of funk, right? Are you guys in a funk? You feel this? This gloom? So Judah is heading for the gloom of anguish. But now look at chapter 9, verse 1. They're headed for gloom and anguish, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan Galilee of the nations. So this, this passage is very evenly split with God telling Isaiah, here's what my people are doing that is going to land them in the gloom of anguish. And here's what I will do to take people who are in darkness out of it, out of the gloom of anguish. So chapter 8 is talking about how to get into the gloom of anguish. Chapter 9, how to get out of it. So Judah is headed for the gloom of anguish because of their folly, because of their rebellion, and they don't fear the Lord. Meanwhile, the promises of God are just marching forward. God is going to be faithful to his word. And he's going to bring an end to the anguish of people who've known nothing but the, the people living in Galilee of the Gentiles. This is this area to the north in Judea, a, a kind of a mixed, compromised area with, with Israelites or, and, and, and Gentiles mixed. And so it's, it's a dark place, right? So, so here's, the, here's the big idea of this passage, the big idea for us this morning, that the world is going to lead us into the gloom of anguish and God wants to lead us out. The world is going to lead us into the gloom of anguish and God wants to lead us out. And so what begins in chapter 9 is how we get out and what that will be to be like to be out of the gloom of anguish. And so we pick up in verse 2 with the people who have walked in darkness. This is where everybody cut off from the promises of God, cut off from the hope of Israel lives. This is where you and I live before we meet Jesus. This is the world that we live in. We walk in darkness. And as we've talked about before, because Isaiah uses this image frequently, to walk in the dark is to be scared. Right? What was that? What was that? Right? You're, you're jumping at squirrels every time you go for a hike in the dark. And you're stumbling at least around here, you're stumbling if you're hiking in the woods in the dark. You're kicking your toes on stuff, and you're, you're making stupid choices, right? You remember getting dressed in the dark? And then around lunchtime, you look at your socks, and one's black and one's brown, right? Because, why? Because you got dressed, because you're walking in the dark. So these are people who are walking in the dark. They're scared, they're stumbling, they're making bad decisions, and they have seen a great light. Right? So, so the sun set on Judah. It is dawning now for these folks. This is an invitation. An invitation to say none of the ways that you are living do you need to continue to live that way. You don't need to be scared anymore. You don't need to be stumbling anymore. You don't need to make such poor decisions with your life anymore. I want to show you something. He says these people have dwelled in a land of deep darkness. Deep darkness. It's interesting in verse 22. He says at the end, they will be thrust into thick darkness. Well, these people are coming out of that thick darkness. What is darkness that is thick? We're talking about layer after layer, generation after generation of darkness. So that the habits and practices and customs that you developed in the dark become almost your light. And the greatest thing about these cultures that have grown up in darkness, the best cultural artifacts we have of them are hopeless and empty and dehumanizing. 
It's layers and layers upon darkness. But on those people, light has shone. What does it remind you of? To think of a scene where all is dark and then God says, let there be light. Right? You see what God is taught, what Isaiah is describing here? He's talking about a new creation. He's talking about a whole new world happening for these people, coming into a new, a whole new life where before formally, right, they couldn't see anything. They didn't have the right explanation for anything. And of course, you know, there's wisdom from, from cultures that have developed separate from Christ and the Judeo-Christian tradition. There's wisdom there, but it always stops short. And ultimately, the people that buy into it become the most burdened and lost in that culture. But now, because the light is shown on them, they can see themselves. They see what's really going on. They see the other people that they've been with. They see the world that they're in, and they see the path in front of them and what they've been called to. And the consequence of this light is, in verse 2, you have multiplied the nation. This describes a fruitfulness, a prosperity, a material prosperity and flourishing. But it's not just that. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. So this is material prosperity coupled with emotional prosperity. Right? The last 150 years in the Western world, has, we have experienced, we have seen material prosperity unlike anything in human history at any other point. We have not seen a corresponding rise in emotional prosperity. Right? We have seen a corresponding rise in addictions and substance abuse and all, all of the evils and woes of society have risen along with material prosperity. That's not what it's going to be like when this light shines on you. There's going to be a flourishing, but there's going to be a joy that accompanies it as well. And what's more, they rejoice before you. So this is material prosperity, emotional prosperity, spiritual prosperity. This is, this is these people off in dark, off in the wilderness, being welcomed back into the presence of God. And, and here's, this is the thing that makes all the difference. It's not just being blessed. It's not just having good fortune, right? You find a $5 bill on the ground, you think, huh, that's neat, right? The random wheels of chance just happened to deliver to me enough for a medium coffee at Starbucks. Thanks, universe. Right? It's a very different experience than like $5. I needed $5. Thank you, Lord. What does it change from? It changes from a nice oddity to, a, to an act of love, to a sense of being loved. That's the world now that these people are being brought into. A place of flourishing and prosperity, of joy, and a sense of being loved all the time by, by God. He goes on to describe this uh, joy, joy at the, as joy at the harvest, as those are glad when they divide up the spoil. These are two kind of common images used in Scripture to, to talk about when God shows up and delivers gifts. So throughout the Old Testament, harvest season was always a great time of gratitude because God came through, right? Because as all of our farmer friends around here are knowing right now, you need God to send the rain. You need God to give water. We can put the stuff in the dirt and then we wait for the Lord. And so God blesses them, but also think about especially this one, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now there's no mention of a battle being fought. There's just spoil. Right? We're gonna we're gonna he's gonna talk about the battle that someone else fights in just a second here. But what this depicts is just like the battle's been fought and you just sort of like peek out the door and Start walking around and what's in this bucket? What's in this bag? It's just 
surprising, wonderful gifts everywhere you turn, and you had nothing to do with it. It's like that kind of joy of utter freedom, of utter just astonishing blessings. Because verse 4, here's the battle, for the yoke of the burden, the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor. The yoke of his burden, this is the thing that you're carrying that's too heavy for you and you're tired of it. And the staff for your shoulder, this is the thing that's driving you on because you're not doing enough, you're not working hard enough, you're not thinking through things well enough. And the rod of his oppressor, this is everything, this is symbolizing everything that is trying to exploit us and use us. And all of these things all at once are broken. It says, broken as on the day of Midian. What is that talking about? This goes back to one of the most extraordinary stories in the Old Testament. Judges chapters 7 and 8, the story of Gideon versus the Midianite and Amalekite armies. Do you remember this story? Let me just briefly sketch it for you. So this is in the book of Judges. And Israel is just, you know, they're just the practice dummy for all of these world-class heavyweight boxers surrounding them. And every once in a while, the, the boxers come through and just pummel them and take all their stuff. They just take all their lunch money and leave them moaning there. Well, God raises up these judges periodically in response to his people's prayers. And Gideon's one of them. And so Midian and Amalek, Amalek uh, sur- assemble to attack Israel. And they're more than 100,000 strong. And so Israel's like, Phew. well, God raises up Gideon and he collects 30,000 people to withstand this battle. And God says, I don't like these odds. And Gideon's like, yeah, me neither. And God's like, we need to get rid of some of these people. And Gideon's like, yeah, what? (laughs) And God, through a series of acts, winnows the army down to 300 Israelites. 300 versus 100,000. But in an extraordinary, miraculous moment, God puts fear into the Midianite Amalekite armies. And at a, a signal from Gideon and his army, where they they break some jars and shine some torches, right? A great light shines. And then the Midianite armies and Amalekite armies attack and kill each other and destroy each other. And the Israelites just wander slowly into the camp and divide the spoil. This is what that battle is going to be like for God's people. God's going to take care of all the threats and all the death and all the pain and all the fear in a moment. And you get to walk in and enjoy all the spoils. This is what it's going to be like when this light shines on you and when you come into this light. It says in verse 5, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult. This is the boot symbolizes here the the stomping, fear-inducing stomping assault of the enemy. And every garment rolled in blood. This is the thing bloodied, right? So this is the assault, and this is my wounds. All of it is going to be gathered up and burned as fuel for fire. It's going to be burned, and the land is going to be cleansed and purified once and for all. Now what we've just read is, on one hand, a great, like, this is what is going to happen when the light is going to come. But this is also exactly what Israel's afraid of. They're afraid of the trampling boot. They're, they're afraid of all the garments that are going to be rolled in blood. They're afraid of the rod and the, the yoke. And they're afraid of all these things. This is why they're scrambling to understand things and why they're checking out with the necromancers and the mediums on Facebook and Twitter to find out what's going on in the world and what are we supposed to do about this. This is why they're doing this, because they're afraid of this. And God says, 
When the light shines, I'm going to take care of it. It'll all be stopped. It'll all be removed. It'll all be reversed. How is all this going to be possible? How is this going to happen? For, don't you want to sing it? For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Now we come at last to what the light is. Right? It's not just the light. But the light is a symbol, a metaphor for something. Something grand, something glorious. Some child. I didn't expect this. This is strange. Outside of the story of the Old Testament, outside of a knowledge of the power of God, this would be ridiculous. This would be bizarre. A kid? You know, I mean, I like movies about like superhero kid stuff, but that's not like a real thing. But here within the story of the Old Testament, this is not just extraordinary. This is expected. Ever since Genesis chapters 3 and 4, we've been looking for the child. In fact, at the end of Genesis 4, when Eve gives birth to Seth, she says, I've been given a son by the Lord. To us now, that son has been given. He's here. The government will be upon his shoulders. What does this mean? He will himself carry the administration for all things. And another way to say this would be that like all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to this one. Or, or, or that by the word of his power, he upholds the universe and all things. That's what this child is going to have, all authority. And by his word, everything's going to run and everything's going to function. Which is why it's so important for those of us who have seen the light, who have met this child, to want to disciple ourselves to him. Right? Are you stuck with something? Are you faced with some problem that's really difficult and challenging and big? Are you, right? Family troubles, work troubles, personal troubles, and you come up against it? If only you knew somebody who had all authority and power and whose word upheld everything in the universe. Right? What, could you tell me what to do next? That would be swell. Right? You want this person in your life because the government is upon his shoulders. And his name will be called. What is this? This is now a reference to his character. His name will be called. What will he be like? Yeah, he's going to be great and glorious, but what's he going to be like? Are we just trading Tsar Nicholas for Joseph Stalin? Like, a, yeah, he got rid of the old regime, but what's the new regime going to be like? What is his character going to be like? He's going to be the wonderful counselor. The word wonderful here is a word that means supernatural. He's going to be the supernatural counselor, meaning every time you go to him for counsel, you're going to find consistently astonishing wisdom. Consistently astonishing wisdom. Right? When you go to counsel anywhere else, you say, yeah, you know, these are the options. Help me pick an option. When you go to this guy with options, he's going to say, let me help you think this through a little bit differently. We see a little glimpse of this consistently astonishing wisdom in the life of King Solomon. King Solomon was notorious for his wisdom, right? And you remember the story of the, the two women who bring the, the two babies to him, and, and he says, well, let, let's cut the living baby in half, and, and then give him, you know, and the real mom says, no, 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 let her take it. And everybody, everybody is scared of how wise he is. And the queen of Sheba, the Ethiopian queen, comes to visit King Solomon and says that she saw all his wisdom she saw all that he was doing with his wisdom. <laughs> she ran out of breath. She was having a panic attack. She had to sit down and have people fan her with palm leaves really quickly because of the consistently astonishing wisdom that the person who sits in the throne of David, who has the Spirit of God on him, has. And, and Solomon had that for a little while, but this guy is going to have it all the time. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. 
Now, we get all excited when we see this. We're like, yeah, he's the God. Well, it's interesting that none of the apostles use this as a proof that, that Jesus is God. So probably in the original setting, they would have read this to be more like what God does. All that he does in power and in might, he does through this child, through this person. In other places, he's called like God's strong right arm. Like he is the strength of God. But it is a weird expression, isn't it? Because it isn't, he is the strength of God. It says the mighty God. Interestingly, in a couple chapters, Isaiah uses this exact expression to talk about God. So, hmm. I don't know what this means. It's a little bit of a mystery at this point. But he seems like a pretty special guy with a pretty special relationship with God. He's called the Everlasting Father. Another one that kind of tweaks us because we're like, okay, is he the child? Is he the son? Or is he the father? So we're bringing our, kind of our Trinitarian categories back into this. Here's what this means. Everlasting Father means he's fatherly. He's fatherly. He, is, he has compassion. Right When a, when a father... With his kids, he's compassion, and he's the one who exerts a measure of control on things. And he's going to be compassionate and in control in a way that's never going to shift. Right? All of us dads know the experience, uh, if you've got teenagers, of the kind of compassion you had on your two and three year old, and then when they become 12 and 13, the sense of compassion shifts. It's still there, it's just layered, on, it's layered under annoyance and frustration and other sorts of things. But this, this one is going to have. Uh, he's going to be the everlasting father. You, can, you, know, you have one kid, and you have a sense of control in your life. All right, this is exciting. This is fun. You have two, three, four, five kids. And you think, I don't know what's going on. Right? But this father, he's always compassionate. He's always in control. He, he's going to be fatherly in this way, in an everlasting way. It's never going to shift. And all of this leads up to him being the Prince of Peace. This is what all of his wisdom and his power and the greatness of his reign is all meant to accomplish and bring about his peace. And then, verse 7, the last verse here, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. I want you to think about that for just a second. His peace-bringing power keeps expanding and keeps getting better. So he brings peace to war. Yay! And he brings peace to the governmental bureaucracy. Yay! And he brings peace to the arts and the media. Yay! And he brings peace to the, the, the health care, right? And he brings peace to law enforcement. And he brings peace to economics and the Fed. And he brings peace to the, the infrastructure and the roads and the, and the DMV. And he brings peace to the commercial realm. And he brings peace to the, the schools. He brings peace to the communities. He brings peace to the the churches. He brings peace to homes. He brings peace to hearts. He brings peace to minds. He brings peace to bodies. He brings peace everywhere. His peace keeps expanding. His shalom keeps growing. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This is on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Which Right, we're just, at this point, we're like, he's the great cosmic superhero king. And Isaiah wants us to remember he's sitting on David's throne, the promised throne. He's the fulfillment of God's promises, which reminds us and helps us remember just how trustworthy God's promises are. This light, this great child, this great government, glorious, mighty God, counselor, is all in fulfillment of exactly what God told you he was going to do. So why are you going off to conspiracy theories and mediums and necromancers? To the teaching and the testimony. He's going to do all this with justice and with righteousness. 
Right? This isn't going to be fake peace. This isn't going to be compromised peace at the expense of justice. This isn't going to be, well, we'll, we'll buy your oil, you buy our guns, well, everybody's happy. It's not going to be that kind of thing. It's going to, not going to be Neville Chamberlain, the British PM, coming off the plane in 1938 after the Munich Treaty with Hitler saying, we gave Hitler Czechoslovakia. There's not going to be any other war now. <laughs> this is peace in our time. It's not going to be that kind of thing. This is going to be, this is going to be peace done right. And it's going to last now and forever, from this time forth and forevermore. Right? You're never going to have to worry. This king is not going to have a Uzziah moment. Where around like he's been on the throne 48 years, time to kind of pick a successor, Uzziah. He's not going to have a moment like that. He's not going to get leprosy and die at 50, 52 years on the throne. And he's not going to be subject to the threats of Assyria or other great empires. There's not going to be any threat and he's not going to waver or wilt. This is going to go on from the moment the light dawns and forevermore. How is this all possible, right? That's what you're asking. You're asking yourself, how is this possible? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here's what zeal means. It means this is God's passion. In many other places, it's translated jealousy. This is the thing that God loves. This is the thing. Don't you touch it. This is his passion. Right, The one who is utterly free, who could do anything he wants, has attached himself utterly to see that this is done. Right, He has all power. He could accomplish anything. He's going to accomplish this. He's going to set this child over the Gentiles on the throne of David and bring peace and joy to all the world. This is, this is the healing of the world, the healing of of all things and the healing of each one of us being described here. So let's conclude then. Isaiah chapter 8 and 9 is a, a series of how-tos. The world will lead us into the gloom of anguish and God, through the work of His Christ, will lead us out of the gloom of anguish. If we want to live in the gloom of anguish, here's how. When you are, don't fear the Lord. Let's start there. I don't have that up here. But first of all, don't fear the Lord. Get afraid at all the news. And then ignore Scripture. Focus on the world's explanations, their conspiracies and their quote-unquote news. And then inquire of and take their advice. And you say, well, no, 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 you don't understand. We're not dealing with witches and necromancers anymore and frog livers and that sort of thing. These are serious people. They wear smart suits. They've had nose jobs. We've just upgraded our witches in the last 3,000 years, right? They're still giving us worldly advice, faithless advice, and they're going to walk us into a land of darkness and distress. And I know you know what I'm talking about. You know the gloom that I'm talking about. Well, we don't want to go there. How do we get out of the gloom of anguish? And as we begin with what God tells Isaiah, fear the Lord. And if your fear is in Him, your hope is in Him as well. Hope in the Lord. Inquire of Scripture. To the teaching and to the testimony. Isaiah is calling Israel to fix their hope on the Messiah, the Christ, this child, and 
Here's a critical thing. Fix your hope on Him and let the knowledge of Him, which He just gave us in chapter 9, verses 2 to 7, let the knowledge of Him come and as you believe it, it will fill your heart with peace right now. His great peace that is coming, you can have now as you hear this and believe it. And then you will be able to walk in the light already. You'll be able to live in this light as you put your faith in Him. Or follow the conspiracies and the tweets to gloom and to anguish. And I can imagine the Israelites saying, Isaiah, listen, you don't understand. It is so crazy out there right now. There's never been a time in world history like this. Three great empires fighting and, and at war. Okay, we need to know we need to know. I think Isaiah would say, hold on, hang on, hang on. What do you need to know? Don't, don't some people in this world need to know who's in charge? Don't some people in this world need to be the ones who know where the hope is? who know where salvation might possibly come from? Don't some people in this world need to be the ones who know the light? And I get it, right? The TV, the media is entertaining. It makes me feel wonderfully addicting feelings. It makes me feel smart. It makes me feel self-righteous. I feel in the know. I like those feelings. But we are called to be the people who know the light. We're called to be the people who know the light. The world knows the darkness. They can check that box for us. Society has got a handle on the darkness. Our job is to know and then to be the light for them. Isaiah says here, bind up the testimony and seal the teaching. That's what Isaiah is. The book is this, bound up and sealed to be delivered to us today. We live similarly in a fearsome world, but we don't have to live in it with fear, with the anguish of gloom, because you and I have seen this great light. To us, this light has come, and to us, this child has been born. So, to quote Isaiah, Isaiah 2.5, Come and let's walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You know our hearts, You know our, our ways. And You know the gloom that many of us struggle with and some of us live under. It's a hard time right now, Lord. And it's very different from the experiences that we've gone through in our lifetimes. And so there's definitely something in all of us that, Lord, we want to see some measure of, we want to have some kind of control. We want to understand what's happening right now in the world. We want to, to know what we should do in response to protect ourselves or to, to, to work for righteousness. Well, help us to remember you, Lord. Help us to remember the fear of the Lord. 
and that our hope is in you. And that as we will turn to the light that is shown upon us and walk in it, we will know the peace and the joy that is described in Isaiah 9. And Lord, we, we want that peace and joy. We want it more than we want the pride of being in the know. We want it more than the joy of anger. We want to walk in the light and we want to be the light of Christ to this dark world. And so, Lord, would you fill us up with your word? Would you fill us up with this joy, with the life of Jesus Christ, that we might be the light shining to those in the deep darkness around us? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.